describing us being disciples of Jesus as we seek to serve him with a commitment and a love and a devotion. And so we're committed to being agents of grace. We're saved by grace. We serve by grace. We will get through by grace. So that's why we're agents of grace and we share a message of grace. And uh, we're coming to the fact that we are a people gathered, as we've been singing in the, the theme of the songs has been the church, the gathering of God's people. And we're thinking of teamwork uh, this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you have set your love upon us and you've gathered us together to be a family, a household, a team. Lord, to be a church, Lord, that serves you. Lord, we thank you for every Christian being part of your worldwide, history-wide gathering of people. Lord, it's immense. Lord, one day heaven is going to be full, not just of a few people in a corner, Lord, but it's going to be full of a, a number that is uncountable from every nation of the world, from every tribal group, from every language group, from every background. We thank you, Lord, that heaven is going to be populated in a wonderful, full way, and it's not going to be it's not going to end in a in a small way but lord we pray now that you bless our fellow christians around the world some who are meeting in small groups here and there some meeting in different time zones today but some meeting in secret in a basement flat maybe in an attic somewhere maybe in a forest somewhere because of because because of the authorities maybe just two christians meeting kind of very privately quietly because they're afraid of who will knock on the door but Lord, we thank you that one day your church, despite the persecution down through the years and despite our own stupid mistakes, Lord, that we've made, your church is going to end in a glorious way. And Lord, we thank you for these assurances, things we've been singing about just. But Lord, now teach us to be a local church in Fernwood and area. Teach us to be a team that serves you and brings glory to you as we sung with the children, Lord, that we might be a faithful body of your people. So please teach us from your word now. In, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, agents need to work together as a team. They have a common goal to defeat the nation's enemies or to fight crime. And there's no room for self-centeredness. There's no room for doing your own thing. There's a job to do and you need to cooperate. You need to be able to rely upon each other. You need to back each other up. It has to be a team. And there ain't no I in team. So the saying goes. <laughs> well, the Christian church is to be a family team. And uh, the passage that uh, Micah read to us earlier on, particularly verses 14 and 15, are going to be our key verses uh, for our study this morning. And the Apostle Paul, just to create some context here, uh, is he's writing to Tim or Timothy, as we call him. And he's a, a pastor, a pastor that Paul sent into various churches at different times to help establish them, maybe sort out some issues, uh, some questions that they had. So Timothy's a kind of a, a pastor who goes around and works in a church for a certain time before then he's moved on. And Paul is writing to this younger man, Timothy, and he's trying to encourage him and help him. It's probably Ephesus where the church is. And Paul is writing to Timothy and saying, these are some encouraging things, some instructions for you. Keep on going, you're doing well, keep on preaching the word. And uh, so it's an encouraging letter to a man called Timothy. Now, uh, the first uh, main heading is this. The church is God's household. The church is God's household. We see that from the passage. So 1 Timothy 3 verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, Paul writes to Timothy, I'm writing you these instructions so that 
If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, one typical view of a household is two parents, maybe one or both going out to work, but 2.4 children. Well, that, that used to be the average in this country, at least. Um, two parents and 2.4 children. And there's that picture of a nuclear family. The, the idea of a household in the times of the early church could be a fairly nuclear family, but a lot had members of the extended family living with them. So there'd be more people in the, in the household than, than we would typically have in our country. And there'd be many homes that had servants. There were plenty of slaves, servants in, in Rome, in the Roman Empire. And so many homes had servants. And homes would also be often where the family business was run from. And so that's another factor. So both homes of households are quite busy, busy groups of people. So household refers to the family units, not necessarily to the building, the house where people lived, uh, but rather to the people of the household. Uh, we've got the children, you've got the, the grandparents, you've got the, the family servants, you've got the, the comings and the goings related to the family business. And often ladies in the family would have a key role in running the business. So that's another factor to, to keep in mind in our picture of what a household is. Now, in the New Testament, when the instructions for church leaders are given, there's a link between how, uh, how he leads his own household, how the leader leads his own household, to how he leads God's household, the church. And if his household includes the family business, if it includes a wider range of family members of, of various ages, if it includes workers, if it includes servants, then you can see how it relates to the church being a diverse family or household. And this is a picture that we have. In Titus chapter one, another uh, set of instructions that, that Paul gives to another um, kind of itinerant pastor called Titus. And it says, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer or elder, uh, actually you could use the word bishop as well, because in the early days, the word bishop didn't refer to uh, a church leader of other church leaders, but actually a local leader. So anyway, an overseer manages God's household. He must therefore be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. So a church needs to be led by a godly family man because the church is a family. Not that um, widowers or, or people who've never got married are excluded from church leadership, but the general principle is that a godly family man or someone who has abilities in running a household, uh, that's one of the characteristics because he is responsible for leading a, a, a church household, the church family. Now, there's a, a book called Practical Word Studies in the New Testament, and uh, it describes this. The church is the house or household of God. This does not refer to the building, but to the people of the church. The church is a body of people who have committed themselves to form a family of people, a family centered around God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the image of the church as a household, the household of God, is a family image. And that's a very important image that we have in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's a, a family of diverse backgrounds brought together by a common faith and commitment to Jesus Christ. And there's a lovely verse in Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, verse 19, and it talks about the, how the 
how the church is gathered from people from Jew and Gentile backgrounds, all sorts of uh, nationalities, but they come together and they're not no longer foreigners and strangers, but they're brothers and sisters together, fellow citizens. And it says, consequently, if you're a Christian, part of the church, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. No such thing as a foreigner in the, in the Christian church, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Now, a church is not a building. It's a gathering of the family of people who love Jesus. Now, I know it's something I said before, but I'll say it again. There's nowhere in the New Testament where church refers to a building. Nowhere in the New Testament where church refers to a building. Now, that's enough of a reason to mention it if we're going to be biblical Christians, but it's also important for other reasons. If we start to get into our heads that the building is the church, all sorts of problems can emerge. And in one sense, it's wonderful that we're starting off meeting in a village hall and even on Zoom now because it shows the church isn't limited to a physical building. And that's probably a good lesson for us to learn. So maybe this is one good thing that can come out of this time. But we do hope to get back to the village hall uh, and maybe one day in the future we'll have our own church building. We don't know. We, we can look forward to that, God willing. But, but let's, let's think about how we sometimes call the building the church. Let's say we start calling our garages, you know, the thing on the side of your house that never has a car in really. But uh, imagine that we start calling our garages the car. So we would say, open the car and, and get the car out. Hmm? Or if we call the oven, the cake. Okay, so open the cake, please, and take the cake out. Bit weird, isn't it? Doesn't make sense. But we say, let's go to church on Sunday. Well, you are the church. The church goes to that particular building. Open up the church for the church to go in. Well, sounds at least a bit silly, doesn't it? Now, am I just fussing about words here? Well, partly. <laughs> because we all know what we mean, don't we? We all know what we mean. It's kind of shorthand, even if it doesn't real, really make sense. And just to assure you, we're not going to appoint word marshals to fine you every time you get, get it wrong. <laughs> we're not going to appoint word marshals to fine you whenever we get our terminology substandard. But there's a serious issue here. There are some people who like church buildings but have no interest in the church. I remember once um, working in, in a chapel in Derbyshire um, and uh, the, we held these evangelistic meetings and there lots of people came in to see this uh, slideshow of the well dressings that they have uh, every year in, in Derbyshire. And uh, loads of people who came in over the time and quite a few people, particularly associated with the, de the denomination of this chapel, they came and they were so thrilled about the, the building. Oh, it's so lovely, this little building's functioning here. Oh, it's a wonderful little chapel. Oh, they looked at the pews inside. They're so enthralled about it, but they had no interest in the message. They had no concern for the church, for people. And that, that was really sad. There are people who show interest in buildings, but not the people. There, there are people who are more concerned about the building than people in the houses around the building, the church building. There are some people who, who will go the extra mile to preserve a fancy church building, but will never go an extra yard to reach a, a people group in Africa or Central Asia, as we were thinking and praying about earlier on. Sadly, down through the years, some church people have spent more time discussing the decoration than that memorial plaque that was put there donkeys years ago. They spend much more time discussing those issues rather than the needs of the people around them who desperately need the love and the truth of the gospel. So there are serious issues when we start confusing the building with the church. We need to resist those uh, pressures, those possibilities. 
One day, the Lord may provide us with a, a building for us to meet in, in Fernwood. We'll keep praying for that and looking out maybe, but it'll be great to have a base to run church activities from and to serve the Lord from, a, a place where we can witness from and invite people to. We can open it, open it up anytime we want to, and it'll be a great asset, God willing. But if we allow a building focus to, to dominate our idea of church, church can become a business, an institution, a museum, and if we're not careful, even a mausoleum. And these are real dangers. Things, things like this do happen to churches and uh, fellowships of God's people who get, if you like, overawed with the building or overfocused on the building. But if we follow the Bible descriptions of church, if we follow those descriptions and they dominate us, then the focus is, is on family. The focus is on people. It's on caring, activities together, love shared amongst each other and on outreach. And it's a, more of a, a free and flexible, if you like, team, uh, agents of grace who are more free and flexible, uh, more flexible fighting force. Now, during the Second World War, the famous SAS, the Special Air Service, developed. It began because there was a concern that the traditional methods of fighting were too inflexible and that the, the military needed something that was less traditional, less institutional, to be a free and flexible fighting force, able to think outside the box working in smaller squads, almost like little family units, and often behind enemy lines. There's always a, a danger that when a church gets established, that traditions develop, it gets bigger, gets more complicated, more business-like, more administration is needed. And some of those things are necessary, and it is good to have a well-administered church and so on. But let's pray for growth. Let's pray that we will become a bigger church. Let's pray that we will be doing that because if that's the case, we will be able to reach more and more people in Fernwood. We, by definition, if the church grows, people are becoming Christians. People are becoming part of the church. However, we must fight to remain a family, God's household, a diverse household, the church of the living God, free and flexible to serve him amongst the people God has put us. Now, what are the characteristics of a church family? What are the characteristics of a church family? Well, the church is a family of people who believe in God and in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. A church family, it's a, a group of people who are committed to live for Christ, committed to live their lives for him. A church family is those who have based their lives upon the promise of eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. And a Christian family, a church family, is those who have committed themselves to live as a family with other believers, with each other. So this family image is, is very clear and very stressed in the Bible, very important in the Bible. And really, churches should be ultimately a United Nations kind of family, a united, at least a united background, united cultures kind of family, all one in Christ Jesus. Let's think about the, the different backgrounds on the Fernwood estates and the villages around. Let's think about some people who are richer than others, some people who are poorer than others, some people who are from other countries. Some people who are born and brought up in, in, in Newark or in the, uh, in the area. I think some people have moved in from different parts of the country. The church should ideally reflect the, the, the breadth of the community and a diverse household that is all one in Christ Jesus, committed to one another. Belief, commitment to Jesus and love for each other. And this is a beautiful picture, isn't it? This is an exciting picture. Excitement that the Lord is building this kind of church or household or family in Fernwood. So let's be enthused and excited about the church as God's household.
And then also we need to see that the church is God's temple. The church is God's temple. Now, in back in our passage in 1 Timothy 3, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, in Old Testament times, there was one temple, one temple building in Jerusalem, and it had strong foundations. It had grand pillars, too. It had two particular pillars at the front, uh, which uh, uh, Jacob and I can't remember, they both had, were named in the Old Testament. And it was a grand building and there's lots of gold and lots of fine craftsmanship work in that building. So there's this one temple and the temple was where God's people went to learn about God. And they went there to praise God and they went there to experience God's presence. So all these things were involved in going to that particular building, that large building there in Jerusalem. It was also meant to be a witness to the nations around who were interested in the Lord of Israel. It was meant to be like a beacon and it was literally a temple set on a hill. And so it had that function of being seen from, from miles around. Now, the Lord Jesus brought about the end of the purpose for a physical temple there in Jerusalem. And he predicted that worshippers of God would no longer be limited to that one physical building there or anywhere. In John chapter four, uh, verse 21, Jesus speaking to a lady who lived in a village called Sychar in Samaria. He says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And Jesus symbolized the end of the temple worship, the temple system, by referring to his body as a temple, and that he would offer himself that temple as a sacrifice to save us. And that the temple of his body would be destroyed, but then he predicted that, that the new temple would be raised on the third day. There'll be something new coming after his death in the resurrection on that third day. And so we get a shift in the New Testament era as Jesus comes in, dies for us, rises again, a shift away from a focus on physical structures and fixed traditions of worship to a freer and more culturally flexible worship of God. Obviously with, with principles that remain, but in terms of culture, in terms of place, in terms of geography and so on, uh, the, the flexibility comes in. The household of God, the family united in Christ and to him is part of the new temple, part of this new structure that God has brought into being that is not stones, bricks and mortar, but it's people. It's people from diverse backgrounds, the household of God. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 21, talks about this building. In him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So what God is doing is he gathers us together, he's building a temple, building a temple, a holy temple. The old temple was the place where God's people were taught. It's where they praise God and where they experience God's presence. But now, as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, now it's in the gathering of God's people, people gathering. That's the place where these things go on. Uh, so it says here, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse two, chapter two, verse five, it says, you also, people again, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. No longer physical sacrifices of animals, 
but offerings of praise and thanksgiving and joy and delight in the Lord. So God's household is the new temple. The church is the new temple. It can meet anywhere now. It's free and flexible. And God is with us as we meet. He's there amongst us by his spirit to help us to learn, to be encouraged. It is the gathering where we especially experience and where we praise and when we pray and learn together. We experience God and we pray and praise and learn together. So the church is God's temple. And a, a wonderful thing is to think that us, weak, frail human beings, with all our faults and failings are, are something even better that surpassed the beauty of that Old Testament temple with all its gold and its grandeur. And God, that's what God is doing amongst us. And then the third thing is this, third main thing is this, that the, the, the church is the, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Going back to our passage. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, what does a pillar do? It holds something up like a roof or, or even a statue. A foundation supports everything above it. It supports the whole lot above it. And a church needs to uphold the truth for people to see and to hear, lift it up, uphold it so people can see and hear the truth. And the church needs to do all it can to support, to be a foundation for the truth. Now, the foundation work is the teaching. It's the maturing of the church as they study the Bible together, as they learn what the Bible really teaches, as they develop the ability to recognize and resist false teaching. They are it functions as a foundation, a support for the truth. The pillar work of the church is to display the truth, to lift it up, to display it, to make it known in example, example of life and in teaching and preaching and just general sharing the good news about Jesus. Jesus told us to go into all the world. So we have that upholding function, that lifting up function as a pillar for the truth. Now, the physical temple didn't move across the world, did it? Everybody had to go to it. But Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. People who believe in the Lord and love the Lord, we can move. We can go. We can go to our neighbours. We can go down our street. We can go amongst the people of Fernwood. The principal functions that were once done inside the temple are now to be done anywhere throughout the world by the gatherings of the household of the church, of the household of God, God's people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we are a special people now. We don't deserve that, but we've been called chosen people to be a royal priesthood, to be a holy nation, scattered throughout the world, serving him, declaring the praises of him who called us out of, that's what church is, people called out of darkness into his wonderful light. So what a privilege that is to think that we have this foundation and this displaying, this upholding and this supporting role for, for the truth, the truth of the gospel, which saves and transforms people's lives. And what a, an exciting mission that we have, and we can look forward to doing even more in the future. So that's the third thing. Now, the fourth thing, last uh, heading is this that the church is to exercise every member ministry, every member 
ministry. Just uh, make sure I've got the right place there. There we go. Yes. The church is to exercise every member ministry. Going back to our passage, 1 Timothy 3 verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing these instructions so that if I'm delayed, people will know how, sorry, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. So how people, the church, the members of the church ought to conduct themselves as part of that household, in God's household. So Paul is referring back, when he talks about instructions, he's referring back to what he said in the earlier part of the passage in verses 1 to 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, without reading that all out, uh, what he does, he gives basic instructions and advice for different roles and relationships in the church family. And he gives instructions like this in, in other letters that he writes uh, to the different churches and, and so on. So it's typical of Paul to, to write helpful instructions for how churches are to function, how different groups of people are to, uh, um, to carry out their responsibilities and so on. So he, he writes regards the different roles and relationships in the church family. And he writes regarding church leaders. He says, here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer or elder or bishop is to be above reproach. And so he gives instructions, qualifications for, for elders of churches. And then verse eight, he talks about deacons. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. He also, in these instructions, touches on the, touches on the role of women in the church here too. And it's interesting because the word for women uh, can be translated as deaconesses or even deacon wives. Uh, we're not exactly sure uh, how that word is to be translated. It could be translated in those various ways. But certainly there's a role for women in the life of the church too. Now, as you gather all the teaching on the church family in the New Testament, as you kind of piece it all together, we can see that everyone has a gift to use. Men, women, younger men and men, women have responsibilities. Older men and women have responsibilities too. Children, of course, have responsibilities in the home to obey and respect their parents and so on. So everyone has a role and a responsibility. And as the church gathers, everyone has a role and responsibility in that gathering. It is to be literally every member ministry every member ministry. Now, in the Old Testament temple there, only certain people could, could play a role. There were just the priests and the, the priest helpers could do anything there in, in, in the temple. Everyone else was a, more of a spectator. They could bring their offerings and so on, and they could share in the sense of eating the meals that were, were cooked from those offerings and so on. Um, but the people actually, administered there in the temple were the priests and the Levites. No one else could do that. They weren't allowed to do that. But in the New Testament, everyone has a kind of priestly role. Everyone can contribute their gift and service. And this is another shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament. All part of God's plan. There's no contradiction here. This is what God was preparing and, and working towards. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, that's the church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In practical terms, everyone needs to step up to the plate. Everyone needs to be active. It is every member ministry. A true functioning church is not a place for spectators. It's not a place 
for spectators. Everyone's on the pitch. There's no one who's just simply on the sides uh, watching. We're all on the pitch. Now, in terms of leadership responsibilities, uh, we see, uh, again, in, in 1 Timothy and other parts of the uh, New Testament, there are those who are the spiritual leaders of a church. Those who are appointed as the spiritual leaders or overseers or elders of a church. Men who are the main Bible teachers, the, the main pastoral carers, or certainly oversee the pastoral care of the church family. And there are ideally several of them to share the load. It's often mentioned in plural terms. The elders were always mentioned in plural terms, the elders, overseers or bishops of a local church. And then there are the deacons of the church. Uh, they're not the spiritual leaders or, if you like, the main Bible teachers, although they can be Bible teachers, but they're certainly to be godly men, as we read here. And, and their focus is that the practical and administrative needs of the church. And they, in a sense, free up the elders to, to teach and to pray and to pastor so that practical responsibilities are taken care of. Therefore, the elders can do the teaching, praying and, the, and to be, oversee the pastoral work of the church. And as you read the New Testament, there are all sorts of roles and responsibilities filled by men and women of all ages. If you read the back end of the book of Romans, you can see Paul's long list thanking so-and-so, thanking Phoebe, thanking all these different uh, characters that Paul has worked with and loves and appreciates. And so there's something for all of us to do. It's not a spectator sport. It's a, an activity we can all be part of. Now, there are some elders or pastors that are referred to who are supported to give them to be able to give themselves to the, the work of Bible teaching. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, a few pages on from our main passage, we can see that it talks about those elders who are supported to be involved in full-time or, or, or maybe at least some contribution so that they can have time freed up to be able to uh, spend time studying the Bible. It says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching, whose work, is, whose labor is preaching and teaching. Well, scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. The worker deserves his wages. So there were people, it doesn't necessarily mean in every single church, who were supported to be able to be uh, full-time elders or at least part-time elders so that they were, were free not to have to go to work uh, all, all the time. So again, in practical terms, there were some elders who were financially supported to be able to do the Bible study, to be the main teachers in the local church. And that is a responsibility. Uh, looking forward uh, as a Fernwood Community Church. Um, we have a part-time pastor at the moment, in the future, full-time, and uh, we need to think and pray about supporting such, uh, such a worker. Now, whilst the church doesn't absolutely need, if you like, a, a paid pastor, a fully supported pastor, uh, many churches around the world function without um, that and just basically have elders who hold down normal jobs and, and share the teaching load. Um, but of course, different churches in different countries around the world, um, different needs, different situations and so on. So there's no one way that's right, no one way that fits all. But there are great benefits to having someone with the training and experience and the time to study and to teach the church. Uh, and that's certainly in the hearts and minds of the leadership of Fernwood Community Church uh, that we, we seek that um, full time pastor in, in the future. But even when Fernwood Community Church, God willing, has a full-time pastor, we need to remember this, that this role is on top of what a church should be doing anyway. It's every member ministry, and it's always every member ministry. It's not a case of, well, let's hire a pastor to be the one-man band. Let's hire a pastor, then we can all relax and just turn up and be spectators, not at all. 
And I don't think many of us would ever uh, think that way anyway, but it's something we need to keep in mind. It's never an excuse having a pastor to hand it all over. It needs to be, if we're to follow the New Testament, an addition to the team family, an addition to the team family who are all involved. And uh, so in a sense, um, what we're going through at the moment with having a part-time pastor and we're all getting involved in so many different ways, it's such a, if you like, a good preparatory work for that so that when that does happen in the future, that uh, we, we are all kind of hit, already running, already uh, working together as a, as a team. But let's keep that in mind, let's keep that in prayer so that we will continue to be. And as the meetings open up and back in the village hall, let's be thinking, well, I really want to get involved. I really should be more on the pitch. I really should be more involved as part of this team. And let's seek God how we can be involved in that and look forward to the things that we can start up, God willing, in activities in the area uh, and at the village hall. So then to, to sum up everything, uh, we see that the, the church is God's household. It's the church of the living God. So let's get these words up here. And also we see that the church is God's temple. So it's the family image. There's also the, the temple image. Um, but it's not about buildings. It's about people who are united in Christ, serving him. A, a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, serving the Lord and upholding uh, the truth. And that's the, the third thing, that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The church seeks to uphold and display the truth and to support the truth by mature uh, Bible study and getting to understand what the Bible really teaches. And of course, lastly, it is a place where every member ministry takes place. And again, let's pray how we can be part of that. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the team that you've put us in. We thank you, Lord, for the exciting privilege it is to be part of your, your church, your team, serving you in Fernwood and the area. Father, we pray that you give us a real passion, Lord, for the, the household of God, Lord, that we would love each other with a greater and greater passion and concern and care. Father, that we would have a real desire to, to function as the temple of God, of the living God. Lord, to declare his praises. Lord, to uh, be able to learn together, to be able to uphold the truth um, and shine the truth out as that pillar supports and upholds uh, the truth of the gospel. Lord, and let, help us to be foundational, Lord. Help us to be a, a, a preservation of what is good and true as we get to know you better, study your word better and pass it on to the next generation. And Father, help us to be really uh, concerned, to be on the pitch, Lord, that we are all part of the team serving you. Lord, help us to hold and grasp this every member ministry concept. Lord, we, we pray these things and your blessing upon us as we seek you now and into the future to serve you and to honour you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.